Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recover Everything podcast, where we have honest discussions about everything in recovery. I'm your host, Chris West. Go to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher to subscribe and listen. Follow us on social media at Recover Everything and visit our website at recovereverything.com. On our show this week, we talk with Chelsea Money, who is an actress and recovery advocate. And she is also starring in a recovery musical called A Story of Broken Misfits. Chelsea talks about her life and we do a roundtable discussion about the movie Beautiful Boy starring Steve Carell. And during the process of talking about this movie, um, there's a lot of really good information for people who may be in similar situations or people that just want to understand what it's like to have a child or family member in active addiction. Since this is a roundtable, all our co-hosts are here today. We have Dr. Sarah Shonian, Caitlin Martinez, and hopefully a new podcast regular, Chelsea Money. Enjoy. For different recovery conventions. Sweet. Is it a musical? It is. Um, and is it about recovery? It is. The What's premise is recovery. What's it called? Well, the first one we did was called Just for Today, which is a recovery motto. Motto. Slogan. Yeah. Uh, this one is called Broken Misfits, mm. um, the recovery musical. So sweet. It's really cool. I rap in it. Whoa. <laughs> I'm not a rapper. Can you rap so right awesome. now? <laughs> Can we get a little preview? Like from the show? Sure. Or, or if you've got some freestyle. freestyle. Okay. Or I can, can I do like an actual You can literally something? do anything, whatever okay. you want. Mm-hmm. Here I go, here I go, here I go. I said girls was my weakness. Man. Okay, then chilling, <laughs> chilling. Mind my business. You saw I looked around and I couldn't believe this. <laughs> okay, that's it. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's I'm, perfect. I'm thoroughly impressed. Me too. It sounds like, well, I wish that's what I sound like in my car. I'm sure you do. <laughs> Thank you. That's so nice. I love that you just jumped right in too, Sarah. Thank you. I was yeah. waiting. I was Girl, hoping so my weakness. Yeah, come on. Chill. <laughs> Chill. Yeah. I get down with some salt and pepper. Oh, yeah. Peppa. Shoop. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Recover Everything Podcast. I'm your host, Chris West. Hey, Chris. Uh, hello. <laughs> Hi. Hello. Who you here with? <laughs> She's your hype man. Right. We needed a hype man after the rep. Oh, Chris, right. coming in. Yeah, coming in hot. <laughs> Anyways. An awful look. We happening. have <laughs> Dr. Sarah Hey yo, Kaylin Martinez. Hi. And Chelsea Money. Hello. Did I get that right? Yep, that's I mean, it. I like you did Sweet. sound it with a question mark. Yeah. Chelsea Money? <laughs> People say money all the time. Money, money, Monet. Money, money. I'd go with money. I was see money for a while, so make money, money, make money, <laughs> money, make. So, this is kind of a special episode. Very yes, special, uh, super special. Something we're gonna start doing from time to time uh, is media-related episodes right. or entertainment, whatever you want to call it. And our new resident. Media expert guest guest definitely not an expert only with life experience. Hey, well, the person we're going to have on to talk about yeah. this stuff with us from now on <laughs> is going to be Chelsea. Yeah, this one girl <laughs> who likes movies. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, so you obviously rap. <laughs> I love, that's the first thing right out of the shoot. As soon as I wake up every morning, mm-hmm. just She's straight like, as Monday. straight into some rock hymn, yeah. KRS One. Um, but you're also an actress, dancer, and recovery advocate. Recovery that's advocate. what I was going to say. Absolutely, a person with lived experience, and long-term <clears throat> recovery, and lovely human. Thank you. So before we get into media-related stuff. Um, can you give us a little background on you so for the audience? 
Absolutely. So I am a person in long-term recovery. I have been since 2010. I found recovery at the age of 19 years old. And um, through my lived experience, I've been able to work at Foundation for Recovery, um, providing training for individuals throughout the state who are looking to utilize their lived experience as workforce development and also educating um, providers on what recovery support services are and how they can implement them into their culture. Nice. Yeah. You travel around a lot, yes? Yeah, I was actually just in Elko last week. For the listeners, um, where is Elko? (laughs) Elko is uh, northwest, so I actually had to take a plane from Salt Lake to Elko, which is a three-hour drive in the densest fog I've ever seen in my entire existence. You couldn't even see the lines in the ground. Wow. Like it was, it's pretty intense. But during that travel, I listened to almost four of your wonderful podcast. Wow. wow. Thank you. And so while I was traveling, I was trying to practice my podcasting voice. Oh. <laughs> You're my new favorite person. Right. Chris really, really appreciates I'm you. a perfectionist. Oh, I, I really appreciate it. Right. But I was like, so should I have that really low voice? (laughs) Because you do that really low voice really well. Yeah, you really do. Especially in your I don't mean to. It's a little bassy, but. (laughs) I'll murder you. (laughs) Lovingly. Oh, man. So then I was like, I will just have my regular voice. And it sounds delightful, Chelsea. Thank you. So what uh, got you into acting and uh, that whatnot. So I have been dancing since I was a really, really small kid and I danced throughout my youth. Um, I was the type of girl who was in a recital every couple of months and my mom was in the backstage doing everybody's hair and which gets really expensive. I realize as an adult, like that's right. so expensive, but, uh, I then continued dancing and and explored acting through middle school as well as high school on the dance team and in active addiction. um, I had kind of straight away from dancing and acting. Um, I was never really like a singer singer. I just really liked to sing, even though I knew I had pitch problems. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But once I got into recovery, um, we're taught to explore like the things inside of us that We've had deep, deep inside from so long ago that we may not have ever explored before to kind of reach in your soul and figure it out what it is that you really want to kind of do within life. And so that was the first thing. Um, I did community theater before I got into a recovery play um, at the Onyx which is right next door to the green door. Yeah. Yeah. I know where that place is. We do too. The Onyx, not the green door. (laughs) Uh, I heard a lot of stories about that place, but, um, so yeah, after that, it's not an ad. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone, unless the green door, door. unless the green door wants to sponsor us. Give us all your money. Yeah. We'll say nice things. (laughs) Um, What about you guys? Have you guys ever done recitals or sang in public? Um, I like to sing karaoke and I have a karaoke machine. My husband bought me a karaoke machine. I think before we were married, probably actually the first couple of years we were dating and what a good gift. Yeah, that's a great oh, gift. well, it was one of those gifts that keeps on giving because mm-hmm. me and my sister-in-law would wake up and drink a cup of coffee and start singing. And <laughs> I'm the type of singer who sings the same song over and over and over again until I get it. So what song is I that? I was going to ask the same question. I mean, there have what, been many over the years. But what's your go-to? Amy Winehouse, Valerie. Hey, yo. That's a tough Sarah. song. It sure is. That's not a karaoke song. I haven't sang karaoke in a long time. Hmm. We sang karaoke when Sarah finished her dissertation. Right. We and what would you sing then? What didn't I sing then? <laughs> I mean, everything from Bohemian Rhapsody to Eminem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whitney. Did Houston. you do Rap God by Eminem? No. I don't <laughs> think many people can do Rap God. So Eminem and Eminem. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I think Sarah I, makes elevator music. I think, yeah. <laughs> I think I can lay down some pretty sweet raps. I'm not doing it right now, but Chelsea's motivated me to, um, start a rap career. I mean, 
Missy Elliott is my Maybe you guys, mentor. you guys could start uh, like peanut butter and jelly instead of salt and pepper. <laughs> That's a That's really good genius. idea. Can it be sunflower seed butter? And That's what I was just thinking, like cashew butter? Yeah, that would be really, yeah, we have to I would really die. Specific. That'd be really fun. Fine, I'll do it. All three of you. Right. Let's do Man. it. My rap game is not very strong. You could just be the okay. DJ in I'll the back the that hits, hits the mm-hmm. buttons. You could be fluff, cool. peanut butter, jelly, and fluff. Right. Oh my gosh. I love fluff or nutter. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I want to be mm-hmm. fluff. Okay. Wait, I want to take it back. I take it back. Sounds cool. <laughs> my go-to karaoke song is tequila because it only has one lyric. Tequila. Is that the name of the song? I don't know. You know what I really don't <laughs> like when people do karaoke and everyone like the energy is at like an all time high. And then somebody sings a song that brings everybody back down. Mm. Oh, I, I like to sing those sad. So I do that all the time <laughs> with meatloaf. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not the meal, but the artist. And I would do. Never mind. Yeah. I think you were there. Yeah, yeah I was getting there. there. I'm OK, singer. I've been waiting. I just can't do it in front of people. I think that I should try. What karaoke? Chelsea, when you sing, when you first began to explore singing on a serious level, did you feel really vulnerable singing? It's kind of scary. What a good question. So my mentor actually told me that I need to work on my pitch and I was like devastated and I was like, I am not worthy. (laughs) Like I went there, you know, I go to the depths. Right. And so I'm like, I can't, I will never be able to do this. And, you know, I've heard these messages we tell ourselves over and over from childhood that came in. Um, But he continued to work with me and was just really patient and kind. And when I would get, you know, when I would fall down, he'd help pick me up and say, you're going to, you're going to learn. And so I feel like having support is really what, what helped me to really dive in and yeah sort of thing mm-hmm. i need to get a mentor i need Sounds somebody fun. to tell me that i have talent and then i'll be like oh okay yeah cool right. you're talented sarah oh my god thank you chris you have talent too <laughs> absolutely i have talent but i'm not talented you said mm-hmm. she was talented but you're like oh, oh chris you have you talent. shine it a little bit you got a little some rusty. talent you got some <laughs> i heard meatloaf in there mm-hmm. nice today we're there are many uh songs and stuff about the hardships of Addiction, yes. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, probably countless. Right. Uh, movies as well. Books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't find much art. Hmm. Like yeah. drawings. Mm-hmm. I think Alex Gray with Tool would be something. Agreed. We are friends now. <laughs> you guys know who Alex Gray is? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Oh, you can't turn around. His sweatshirt has Alex Gray. Oh. <laughs> friends. Anyways, we've been voted off the island. No, no, <laughs> no. We like she just too. knows. She does know. Anyways, um, specifically what we're going to talk about today is the movie Beautiful Boy. Uh, Beautiful sorry. Boy is based on a true story mm-hmm. from the memoirs of Nick and David Chef. Yes. The movie was directed by Felix Van Groningen. Dang. Hopefully I'm I sorry, said that Felix. right. You did a really good job. Uh, initial thoughts around the table. I really enjoyed it. It's very sad. Very real. It was so real. When I watched it, I um, I really just thought it was, it was like a every family therapy session that I've done. They did a good job. Here's my problem with it. Go on. It seemed like only like the avenue of like somebody who had money. Hmm. Yeah, it was a different experience, but I think that's kind of speaks to addiction in general and how it doesn't matter if you have money or if you don't have money or and it doesn't it doesn't matter. Addiction doesn't care. But they did have, I guess, more privileges or opportunity to seek treatment because they did have money. But it's kind of a curse and a blessing, too, you know, which I I, I again agree with like can see uh, how it relates in the real world, meaning uh, there are plenty of people that go three, four times to rehab Mm -hmm. before it works out. Um, If it does work out. Yeah, if it does. From an actual movie standpoint, editing and stuff, there were some huge problems for me. Oh, go on. This is interesting. Mm -hmm. One was the music. 
Hmm. It was all over the place. Hmm. It had Nir- it had Nirvana, then it had like weird jazz, mm-hmm. then like this Inception music when he was like going through the Notebook. It was like really ominous and weird, and then all of a sudden it was like some fifties music. It had like no rhyme or reason. And I think that's the point of addiction and the peaks and valleys of substance use in general. Whoa! I don't know if that is uh, that pertains in any way, shape, or form. That is a great answer. I don't know if I agree with it. Right? <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Hmm. It was one of those movies where it was like, oh, well, this is true. You know, like, I think we have the expectation that things are going to get a little, they're going to turn up the Hollywood a little bit, but this was really just pretty real, you know? Absolutely. And to see from a parent's perspective of like the powerlessness over your child who is young enough to, you know, you're able to support them as a a parental role, but also you kind of have to take a step back and really think, you know, what can I possibly do mm-hmm. for my kid at this point? I've tried everything and that's what's really real. I, I myself, um, seeing the movie in theaters was filled with so many emotions on a personal level because I myself have been through the exact same story um, as a young person and also family members who are still struggling um, that you just... No matter what, you can help them in any way, shape, or form. But if they're not ready or willing, there's nothing you can do. Mm-hmm. So a movie that's like somewhat comparable to The Beautiful Boy. I don't know if any of you have seen it. Is Basketball Diaries. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah of course. Uh, it, it, it's for me is a little more relatable. Just I don't come from money. So mm-hmm. there's there's not a lot that would be relatable to me in Beautiful Boy. Meaning because there's not a person I know whose parents could pay for their rehab multiple times with a credit card. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were the scenes where I was just getting angry. Right. I was like, come on. Like, I don't know anybody that does that. I, I think also the storyline is really um, relevant to our opioid epidemic right now. Sure. Um, it's basically gotten into the um, upper class uh, zip codes of America. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it hit home to a lot of people. And, that's been, even though the drug epidemic has been going on for so many years, now that it's hit these homes and these neighborhoods, it's it's talked about differently. Right. And I think that's kind of part of the problem. Like now it's an epidemic or a crisis because it's affecting middle class, right. upper middle class white people. And now it's, oh, like we should start talking about this. It's affecting, you know, the white people of right. the world. Mm-hmm. And so now it's, now it's a big deal, right. but really it's always, it's always been there. And people now, I mean, even treatment centers are under scrutiny, which mm-hmm. they should be. Absolutely. For malpractice and patient brokering and all of this stuff, because now it's a needed resource. And I mean, it's always been, but before I think it's more of like a luxury resource, like you're mm-hmm. saying, Chris, because so many people can't afford it. And I mean, I know that people take out seconds on their home yes. and they cash in retirement funds and they do whatever it takes to pay for their loved one's treatment, hoping that it will work. And you just like people are, have so much hope in these systems that fall short a lot of times too. Mm-hmm. And with that being said, there are many ways to find recovery, mm-hmm. not just treatment. So mm-hmm. that's another way to, to look at it. It's just one way of finding treatment, but very sad. Yeah. How do you think uh, Steve Carell did? Oh, I love Steve Carell. I felt he was so real and, you know, he is a father of younger uh, children and, and he was able to put himself in, you know, the character shoes. Um, I watched, I actually listened to, he did, um, I think it was through NADAC. Uh, he did a talk after it was released about his character and, how he, he answered different questions from the audience and, and, you know, he had never personally been through, um, any issues with his family, but he was able to see how that might affect and it drew from him. Had he done any similar kind of serious drama roles? Yeah. A bunch. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. got Foxcatcher. You got, uh, Dan in real life. Is that it? Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, Is that out yet? Dan and Real Life? Oh, yeah. Okay. Girl. It's like 
15 years old. <laughs> In that new movie that's out as well right now. With the little cat, the little uh, figurines. Yeah. That's the movie I thought you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The World War II mm-hmm. figurine movie, yeah. What is that movie? Um, big something where it's like the, the big short. Yeah, the big short. I've seen like 10 times. He's mm-hmm. so good in that. Uh, yes, I, yes. I've seen, I've seen none of those movies, guys. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm a huge Steve Carell fan. I probably watched the entire run of The Office over 10 times. Mm-hmm. Anybody who likes The Office has seen The Office over 10 times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the person that played his ex-wife in the movie mm-hmm. played his wife in The Office. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know her name, but it was a little, it was very strange because it was like, oh, they didn't make it in the show and now they have a son who's going through addiction. So you think that A Beautiful Boy is a continuation? A I do. I do. Right. And it didn't work out for Michael Scott. <laughs> right. Oh, it's not funny anymore. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> oh, what happens when popular series end? <laughs> they have kids. They get addicted to a lot of drugs. Right. Um, how do you think the... The young actor play like portrayed. I love him so much. I think he's, he's so. I think good. he did a really good job as well. I also love "Call Me by Your Name." He did such a great job in that film, also. What about the like cinematography of this movie, which I thought was very interesting? It's probably my favorite part of the movie. The cinematography. How it was actually shot. Oh. How it like looked. The, the angles. And such. And such. It was dark. You it think was so? Dark. The cinematography was extremely dark. I mean, none of the lighting was actually light. Yeah, yeah. It was all natural lighting. That's why? Yeah. But it felt like gloomy light. It was yeah, yeah. Like sunshine. No, I agree. I completely agree. I, I think it was kind of viscerally shot, where it was a little up close and personal and and, and not uh, not very stationary, meaning uh, they moved the camera a lot. Right. Uh, especially like the beach scenes. Mm. They were like in the water. I liked it. Mm-hmm. I liked it. <gasps> There's wow. one scene in the movie that really struck a chord. So do you remember when he was sitting, um, Steve Carell was sitting with Timothy at the diner mm-hmm. and he was asking him for money. He was asking mm-hmm. his father for money and his father wanted to just take care of him. He just wanted to make sure he was okay. And he didn't care about anything else, but getting that money and, mm-hmm. For those who um, have been in that place, I've talked to many people in recovery that felt as though that was one of the most uh, powerful pieces um, in the movie and just depicted like the true essence of addiction. And Mm -hmm. no matter how deep you get into addiction um, and no matter how hard your family's fighting for you or how hard... um, they're wanting to see you succeed. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And that really struck a chord. I've That's been, a super emotional scene. You can tell like the father is just but pleading with the son and wants something so different. And where he's at in the moment is he's in pain. He wants money because he needs right drugs. Yeah. He needs to get high. Technically and, he wanted to go to New York. Right. Did he? That's what he was Did asking. He, oh. <laughs> about that? We all wanted to go to New York, I'm yeah. sure. And I think it's I think it's easy too for family members to get hooked into that cycle. Right. And it's easy to sit back and look at the boy and exactly. say, like, get it together. Like, look how your family's suffering, you know, and look how much they're trying. But the reality is that family members also need and deserve the opportunity to seek recovery and do some introspective work because you can't just sit there and try and try and try because um, it's not helpful it's anymore not. to engage in that cycle. And family members will put themselves in equally compromising positions and they'll drive to the depths of the ghetto to pick up their family member that's having a hard time and they compromise their lives too, just the same. So it's the same process, but just a different addiction. Right. I want to know where that, where, what town they were in. Cause he seemed to find him pretty easily every it's time. It's like Sausalito Seattle. to me. Or yes. It was San like somewhere around San mm-hmm. Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're right. It was San Francisco. They mentioned it in the movie. They, they were by the Golden Gate Bridge the whole, mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. One of the more interesting uh, concepts in the movie, which struck a chord with me was, how Steve Carell's character thought his son was 
I think something other than he was, meaning uh, he had, you know, he was a very good writer. He was waiting for his son to who uh, explore his potential. Mm-hmm. And his son had like pretty much yelled at him at a certain scene in the movie. Like, no, this is who I am. I am this addicted person. I'm not the famous writer you want me to be or super talented. It was super talented. But mm-hmm. at that moment, there was nothing mm-hmm. that he, that Steve, there was no explanation for Steve Carell to give his son to, to make him be what he wanted him to be. Mm-hmm. It was like a, a moment of acceptance that I don't think is talked about a lot in movies, mm-hmm. I guess. I, yes. I, I think that, um, along that same line, uh, at the end of the movie, he was talking to his ex-wife over the phone and she, she was like, you have to do something. You have mm-hmm. to help. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something we can do. And and he was lo- overlooking this beautiful, beautiful ocean and was just like, I cannot save him. Mm-hmm. And that was that mo- moment mm-hmm. where he realized that he just couldn't do anything. I think that realizing that and then beginning to take power and control back over for your own life is something that's really paramount for all family members with a loved one living with an addiction. Um, and what you were saying too, Chris, about it's like the expectations that parents have too, because parents usually want their kids to grow up and fit into this like box. And like, I didn't raise you like that, or I didn't, you know, and then they can't fathom one that their kid is, you know, living with an addiction and dying essentially that's one piece of it. But the second piece of it is like, well, what will people think? And like that judgment, like, well, I don't have a son that's an addict. Like that's no, like that's not who we are. And it's like the sooner that they can learn to accept that, the sooner that things I think begin to turn around. Because even when kids find recovery, a lot of times their parents are like, okay, great. Now you can go to college and now you can do this and now you can continue to live the life that I perceived for you. Right. Let's just snap back to quote unquote mm-hmm. normal. This right. back on track with our plan. Right. right. And then kids can never live up to anyone's. You, no one can live any up to anyone's expectations ever. Right. Regardless of whether or not addiction is present. Mm-hmm. And most of the time people don't find recovery at such a young age. Right. Either. Mm-hmm. So what is like the average age people kind of try to get better? Or, or more, more successful. Is there, is there an age? I think uh, I should probably know this answer. We all should. I think it depends on when it starts and how bad it gets. Absolutely. I know people who have found substances in their forties and fifties and didn't Mm -hmm. find recovery until their sixties, seventies. Even, um, I do know that a lot more young people are finding recovery and access to supports. Um, these days than, than ever before. Mm-hmm. So fair enough. There's hope. Right. Another interesting concept in the movie uh, was this uh, like self hatred stuff was mm-hmm. going on where in the beginning of the movie, there was like some lines where he's like, I already hate myself. Like you don't have to get on me. And then later in the movie, he kept saying it, but it was more of an excuse to, to get his dad off his back. Hmm which uh, I thought was kind of wicked and evil in, for the character. Like, I, I guess I haven't seen that portrayed mm-hmm. that way. I think that the identity piece is always there. Like family members, if somebody else that you care about is struggling and you can't help them, you think it means something about you. So family members will feel like I'm not a good enough parent. If I was a better parent, then I would, this wouldn't be happening to me. And then the... I guess on the opposite side of the spectrum, the kid probably that those things well, are very that's, true. For that's, him. What yeah. that's what I'm saying is the mm-hmm. kid was using him hating himself as an excuse to get his dad off his back. Like, like just leave me alone. I already hate myself. That's enough for him to leave me alone for now. I think the deeper you are in addiction, the more shame that is derived. And I think when you have that negative self-talk for so long, it is becomes your identity and second nature. Mm-hmm. Right. And not only that less, uh, impactful to yourself. It's you're so low that, I mean, right. telling yourself like, I hate myself. is like, Oh yeah, I do it every day. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's your new normal. It's like Eeyore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always sad. I, know. I, I love it. Yeah. As a kid. That's why I knew mm-hmm. I was 
issue I did have with the movie. Oh. Uh, I was never quite sure which drug he was on because they were talking about meth and then he would look like he was shooting up heroin and then it was like back and forth. So I had a little bit of issue with that. I think the, I can understand where you're coming from, but that is also often the case with people in active addiction. It's like, how much money do I have? What can I get access to? What's available? Like in the, in the movie, um, he goes to college and it's like, okay, well, I can't find this here. So I'm going to use what I can find, Mm -hmm. you know, and people do shoot up meth. Yeah. Yeah. I know. So it could have been a combination of substances. But also I think it's important to remember that the drug doesn't matter. The symptoms and side effects are the same, but we always harp on, especially now it's like opioids, opioids, like this is the problem. This is the problem. And it's like, "Mm, the drug doesn't matter. It's the same process. No matter what. It's just my movie brain, like (laughs) being like, wait a second. Mm -hmm. This doesn't add up. My hope is that they intentionally did that. I do too. As well as the music. Mm -hmm. I think that was probably part of that, but. Doubt it. (laughs) It is. (laughs) Other issue I had with the movie. Mm -hmm. The obligatory sex scene. I don't remember sex. I don't remember shower sex. sex Yeah, like out of nowhere. I was like, was that needed? Like, did it help the story? Mm -mm. Like, I get it. He picked up this girl, you know, she was like really, really okay with shooting up drugs very quickly. Well, she was dating him in college. Right. I, I don't they think that was the same college. girl. It, it was, was because I don't think so. It, it was because he said, so. Oh, Samantha. Mm-hmm. And she was like, Oh, she didn't look wow. the same. She had brown. She had, she had red hair and then she went mm-hmm. just change the hair. I'm going to agree to disagree. <laughs> I think those are two different characters. I understood them to be the same character because the lady in college, as soon as she found out he was doing drugs, it was like a little montage. She just like bounced and then he went back home and then he was supposed to go back to LA, but he stayed in his hometown and some random ass girl walked up. Yeah, that's what exactly, exactly what happened. He was just like hanging out. But it's not outside. a rando. It was. It was they they, <sighs> they had history and they were like. It's two different ones. I don't know. Yep. Winning. Two different characters. I paid very good attention to this movie. They do have the same face shape. Mm -hmm. Can you guys just tell me? Why they put in the obligatory sex? No, that I'm right. We don't know yet. Oh, we know. Stand by for correctness. It's two different actresses. I don't want to confirm or deny. I'm going to confirm for you. It's two different actresses. Anyways. She was very comfortable with shooting stuff very quickly. It seemed like. Oh, like when he shot her up? Yeah. Yeah. It's like she, he found her and was like, hey, I really want to party. How about some needles? I was just going to say sometimes that's all it takes mm-hmm. is for somebody to have a connection with somebody and to have that subtle peer pressure and sexual tension, tension <laughs> to make choices like that. And when you're in, I feel like as women too, it's a totally different scenario because women are taught to receive their feelings of self-worth based on the guys that they're dating. And so if you meet somebody and they're like, oh, I want to experiment, they're like, cool, I'll try it. But like, you don't think about it. It's like when people get horribly drunk and they hate themselves and then they end up making a fool out of themselves because they're trying to like be someone that they're not or like try to fit in so much, you know? I was thinking in that scene, hopefully they had Narcan or something because it was her first time ever probably doing anything mm-hmm. and if they're shooting her up. But we didn't know what they were shooting her yeah. up with. So. Right. Yes, but something I did like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm only saying these likes. Negative I'm, Nancy comments. I'm not, they're not negative. I'm giving you guys options to explore, explain totally. and explore. Mm-hmm. Something that I really liked is that, you know, recovery is not linear linear. So he went into the recovery process on a few occasions and, you know, feelings had come up and he didn't necessarily, um, learn how to process those emotions yet. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he had a reoccurrence, but that isn't necessarily true for everybody, Mm -hmm. but I think that it's important to talk about. Um, and it helps kind of diminish shame in a way. I mean, although in the movie it was depicted as shameful and wrong and the viewer might not have understood why he had went and used again, but it's very, very real in the recovery community. I think so. 
I also think that um, it's not dichotomous. So it's not like, oh, you found recovery, went to treatment. And then all of a sudden, like there's a magic wand and you're better. Mm-hmm. A light switch goes mm-hmm. off. It's yeah. an ongoing process. I think that's kind of what I was trying to get at too with the, like the, the acceptance of like, this is how, who your son is now. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think part of Steve Quirrell's character was like, oh, this is going to end eventually. Right. Which is not the case. Right. It's like, a, like you said, an ongoing, mm-hmm. something you have to deal with. Right. And I think just accepting too, that it's part of a bigger journey and that everyone has their own journey embedded within like one larger picture of it. And that is kind of sounds a little out there, but I think it's true. Can what, what do you mean? I think that not just accepting like, oh, my kid's an addict, this is it, but more accepting like this is where my kid is at right now. And there's still things that are wonderful about them and they're still talented, but this addiction mask is blocking that. And I need to learn to accept that my family is living with an addiction and stop fighting it. Cause like the more resistance I think just brings in more of that negativity, you know, where it's like, it's not there. It's not there. It's not there. And when you are supportive to your family members who are still, um, actively in addiction, um, they can come back knowing that when they are, if they are ever ready to find uh, recovery, that they would be able to come home and, you know, have but, a place back in the family. Right. right. But in the movie, there was a part where the, um, the son was begging his dad to let him back in the home. And mm-hmm. he said that there was nothing else that he could do. And I think that happens with a lot of families. I know for me, uh, if my mom didn't practice tough love, which has a stigma within itself, um, but is real that if she didn't practice tough love on her 18 year old girl, kind of releasing her from her home, I would never have found recovery at such a young age. Right. But everybody is different. Also somebody that we have not talked about, which I think is a common occurrence is that there were siblings. Yeah. I really liked the portrayal. He still was $8. That was messed up. Yeah. That's so that shit happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I loved the the way that the the kids came into the picture and how they struggled and they had questions um, and the way that they depicted the relationship with his stepmom and his mom and going back and, and forth between houses. Um, I grew up going back and forth between my parents' houses like that and flying a lot as a unaccompanied minder and like it's painful and weird and you don't know what to do and you're scared. And I think they did a really nice job of showing that, that, you know, from a, for a young age, it might be a, uh, like a, mm, an adversity that someone in privilege has, right. He wasn't starving. He wasn't sexually abused, but mm-hmm. he had some pain in his childhood. And I think they did a good job showing that and, and exploring it. And then what that looks like for the parents trying to get help and, and being in a blended family and everyone being involved and having different opinions about it and, and what that recovery journey should look like. I liked the way that they worked all those pieces in. Mm-hmm. Is going home like a normal trigger for people? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It seemed like he was doing fine in LA. Then he saw his family. Well, he, I mean, with his, he was with his mom, but as soon as he went home, So there is something about going back to the exact same environment, which you used in and his room was his, um, space of use, if you will. And he, that was his, um, darkness lived in his room. Essentially he had all of his journals, all of, you know, his, his posters on his wall. And like, it was a space that, you know, was during his dark times. And so when he had found recovery or even went to college and came back, all of those things kind of come back up again and are just blaring in your face. So mm-hmm. I could see that. Plus the family members not really engaging in their own recovery. So true. And then when somebody comes home and then they're sober, all you can do is stare at them because mm-hmm. you, you're like looking at them, waiting for them to mess up. Right. Walking on eggshells. And so like when you expect that of a person, then they just kind of remesh back into that old role again, because it's like, you're just like staring at them, smelling them, look, going through their stuff and not like there's no trust being rebuilt because it can't be one-sided. Like that boy's recovery cannot carry the whole entire family. It's impossible. And his insanity, right? His drama mm-hmm. and trauma that he right. was creating within the family unit. Yeah, they're so used to it. 
It's mm-hmm. their normal. Right. And they didn't do anything that I know of to like really work on themselves. It was all put on the boy. So they were all waiting for his condition to change and stay changed before they felt better again. Well, uh, Steve Carl's character did go like to that scientist and get all the brain scans and. But that's not his own work. Yes, that was what I was going to mm-hmm. say. It is something. Because yeah. he did all of that research online and he yeah. even, I wouldn't suggest to anybody who's listening, but he took substances to mm-hmm. see what it had felt like and that sort of thing. But it isn't until you do the actual work on yourself um, mm-hmm. that you're going to get the the real benefits of it. Right. And, and I think he, he explored and he wanted to know more about it. He wanted to know what was going on with his son. But when we say like, do your own recovery work, that means like, explore within yourself what role you're filling, what role you take in this dynamic, Mm -hmm. which can be really hard as a parent to say, I play some role here. What is that? How can I change? How can I get healthy on my own and not put all of my expectations and hope in my son or Mm -hmm. in my wife or whoever that family member may be who has a history of addiction. So he did want to know, he did try and seek answers, but we're talking about that kind of more inward reflection, right. which can be really tough. And why course. do you think people don't want to do that inward reflection? I think they're not the one that's addicted. Of yeah. Course, you know? I, and I think, I think there's also a lack of awareness that that needs to happen. Um, Agreed. You know, everyone's like, well, they're an addict. It's on them. Mm-hmm. they need to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and figure it out. And you can't do anything about it, which, I mean, there is some truth to that. They do need to do their own work, but there's also recovery that needs to happen for family members yeah. as well. Family members are just adi- as addicted to their family member in active addiction and in recovery sometimes as the person in active addiction is addicted to a drug or alcohol or addictive behavior. Codependency is real. Super real. Let's explore that a little bit more. Sarah, can you talk about the um, study that shows the brain? Because that I think is fascinating Mm -hmm. um, and really makes it physiologically real when we say that um, co-addiction is a real thing. Yeah. And I think that um, addiction is a family disease. And when I was in Texas, we, I participated in, well, I contributed to the development of a study that we did where we showed pictures, um, of people in recovery from substance use disorders, pictures of their drug of choice, and then their brain is activated in certain areas. Um, and then we showed family members pictures of their loved one that was in recovery and their brain is activated in the exact same way which means that it's the addiction process is the exact same um, no matter what drug or addictive behavior people choose to engage in. Like the process is the same. The identity is the same. The poor boundaries are the same. The roles are the same. Like addiction kind of permeates and affects everybody. It's not just the person using, which means that the whole family needs to get well or it doesn't go away, you know? And that's why like we see transgenerational patterns of addiction. Like that's why they say that kids that grow up in families with addiction are more likely to find a romantic partner that also is living with an addiction. And then it's also genetic. So it's passed on from generation to generation. And then you just kind of create this environment that fits really, really, really nicely for an addiction to kind of move in and destroy everything. Right. From like a family systemic perspective, even if it's um, a toxic dynamic, the -hmm. family like just wants that homeostasis. It just wants to find that normal thing, even if it's a painful dynamic. Mm -hmm. It's what we're accustomed to. Right. Comfortably uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. And like you were saying, Chris, when he did all that research and stuff, it makes it's kind of all control because we want to know exactly what it does to your body, exactly what the behaviors are, exactly what happens in the brain, because you feel like the more you know about it, the more control you can have over it. And so it's not just like you learning like, Oh, like this is what my kid is experiencing. It's like kind of manipulation or trying to regain control in a sense, because you're trying so hard to learn about something so that you can stop it. 
And no matter how much you know, no matter how smart you are, no matter what, no matter what, you can't do anything to stop it. This is going to be somewhat controversial what I ask. Mm. Oh. Right? Obviously, nobody likes violence. Mm -hmm. Right? But how effective would it have been from just to fucking knock his fucking kid in the head a couple of times. I mean, come on. Because it's probably not that, probably not that effective. Wait, is this, is this the one on the show where you guys say this is his mulligan? No, this is is not. I'm being completely (laughs) serious. But I think that you're, because if I was a dad in, and I was in Steve Carell's position, uh, if I would have found my kid in alley, I don't know if I would be able to not, Knock him around a little. Well, the, I think the and, thing is the kid. And maybe, maybe he. The kid who's in withdrawal, who's craving, is already in excruciating pain. Mm-hmm. Punching him a few times, spanking him. It's not going right. to have an effect. He's still going. To I think it's a valid question. I think that a lot of parents do that. A yeah. Lot, and, yeah. And I don't, it, I don't think that parents aren't mm-hmm. spanking their kids when they find weed in their room or right. Coke or because, whatever well, they, the substance Yeah. And they want to try everything, right? Like. First you get angry mm-hmm. and then you like, cause you try to control the behavior. You try to stop the addiction. You're like, if I beat the shit out of them, maybe they'll stop. Maybe they'll like, maybe all of a sudden the addiction and their brain changing will like go away because they don't understand. They're like, okay, maybe harsher consequences. Maybe I won't talk to him for a while. Maybe I'll, I'll try love. I'll try. I'll say, how could you do this to your family? What, look what you're doing to your mom. Look what you're doing to your siblings. How could you do this? That doesn't work. Okay, then I'll try. I'll if I if you stop using, I'll buy you a new car. If you do this, I'll do this. And you're still trying to control the behavior. And no matter how hard you try, you can't. You won't win. You like as soon as you realize that you have zero control over the behavior of others, even if they're your kids. Like your kids are still their own person. You can't that, control that, it. That applies in other things not related to addiction. Oh, across the I board. I mean, it's just. A different human being. Everybody should know that you don't have control over another human being. That's true. But we try. We think like, oh, if I cry, and it's not like conscious. Like we think, oh, if we cry, or if I bitch about it enough, or if I do this, then then they'll change and make my life way easier. But instead, we have to step away and just be really uncomfortable. So what and would, work on ourselves? What would have been the correct thing for Steve Carell to have done early on? I don't think there is a correct thing. I think. It is every family member's process, but I do believe that him getting his own support from Mm -hmm. the get-go would have probably made things a little bit easier for him to find acceptance. Yeah, go get well yourself. If you think that your loved one needs to go to a therapist or go to a doctor or go, you need to do those things too. It's interesting because in the movie, it didn't seem as though his parents um, who had divorced had been close in any way, shape, or form before, mm-hmm. and I think and I think that uh, through this process of their son's addiction, they had formed, you know, maybe an alliance again and co-parenting. And I have that same story with myself: is that my parents did not, um, they you wouldn't see them in a room before, um, and when I was going through my own addiction, they banded together and supported each other. And ever since then, they've been able to be friends. So something good, I guess. I've probably seen my mom and dad in the same room three or four times. It's not funny, but sometimes um, addiction in a family can cause people to separate. And not to say that, like, but it's a lot of times it's the person with the addiction that gets blamed or like a kid mm-hmm. with the addiction, like if you weren't an addict, then your mom and I would have been able to work things out or things would have been better. But that's not, that's not true. It's like the chicken or the egg. Mm-hmm. Nor is that really helpful to someone <laughs> who's trying to find sobriety. Right. Like, cool. So I already feel like crap about myself. And now it's, my parents' mm-hmm. relational demise is my fault too. Right. <laughs> it's like the Game of Thrones scene when she's walking down that thing. And they're oh, just yeah. Saying shame spinning on her. you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, question. <clears throat> So from watching this movie, right, uh, the kid starts to spiral, right? Steve Carell starts to spiral. Mm-hmm. We, we, we talked about how there, there is no correct way to attack immediately, right? Mm-hmm. As, a, as a family member? Yeah. 
getting your own help immediately would be my suggestion. Yeah. Because from what I'm gathering, if I was like in his position, right, from what we've talked about, my immediate thought is like, okay, if I see any, any of these patterns, my immediate thing is, should I just cut it off? Like. Cut off what? Like cut your kid off? Yeah, immediately. Mm. It depends on this severity it depends on how long the person's been using it depends on i mean i wouldn't say what the person's using every family has their own kind of moral code Mm -hmm. if you will but um i think education before just completely cutting off and you know kind of getting them into their own therapy as the person who's using substances and if you've laid out things to kind of help and support them and they're still not um finding recovery or, or, or getting help. Um, yeah. Cause it seemed like a lose, lose situation for that dad. It's like, I can either, cause he immediately took him to mm-hmm. a facility. Right. right. Mm-hmm. And then if he would have cut, cut him off right there, then who knows what he would have had no relationship with his son for all he knew. And if he continues to help, then the manu- manipulation starts and it's when I think three years of, I think when parents, realize or learn that their children are struggling with an addiction, the first thing that they need to do, like you said, is get help themselves. And so not, not reacting by just, you know, like cutting them off, but wonder um, like where he fell short was you take your kid to treatment, like you get them help if you have the resources to do so, but then you have to start working on yourself too. Thank you. That's Mm -hmm. pretty much what I was asking Mm Yeah. for the audience. Cause I knew that. Right. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's true though. Like they have to, because at that point when he took his kid to treatment in the movie, he gave all of his power and all of his energy, time, resources, energy, and he put it all on his son. And that's a lot of pressure. Like the kid has to get well for himself and for his whole family. Mm. It's too much. It's too much. You I don't, can't be responsible. I guess I don't understand that aspect of like, what, what kind of pressure? I don't really understand that. What, I get what you're saying, it's, but I don't really see that all. I mean, families say, if you don't get well, we won't be okay. And so I'm going to continue to help you. So you get well and continue to do the things that I think you should be doing in your wellness or I won't be okay. Putting it I, all on their shoulders, mm-hmm. essentially. I guess I don't necessarily see, maybe I'll cut this out, but in my opinion, I don't really see a problem with that. Well, think about I it think as if it were another disease, maybe. I would say that to my dad. I'm like, Grandma, you got to get better because I'm going to feel better. So my grandmother. <laughs> Even right if it's now, not true. Yeah. So my grandmother right now smokes cigarettes. Um, she's 86 and she's been smoking since she was 13. Mm-hmm. And the doctor said, if you don't stop smoking, you're going to lose a leg. Mm-hmm. And she never stopped smoking. She didn't lose her leg, but so that Your grandma's like shame 80. Ba- <laughs> she smokes a pack and a half a day. For sure. But that shame-based approach doesn't necessarily work for everybody. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, you shouldn't do that as a human in general, because then you're relying on someone else to make you happy. It's true. And things get better when you're, when there's sobriety and recovery, like things, things, conditions improve because then you have opportunities to create relationships and to provide love. But otherwise you're just living in fear and putting all your expectations on someone else. With that being said, I couldn't imagine being a mother in that situation. You know, Mm -hmm. you, we can give the tools um, to people and say, this is what we should do. But when you're in it yourself, it is probably the most. Oh yeah. Especially when you talk about cutting your child off or tough love, because there's so many questions that immediately come up. Like, like you said, Chris, what if you never see your child again, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is a very real reality, but also if you're letting them live with you and maybe you're giving them money, you Mm -hmm. also may never see your child again. Like you said, it's a lose lose. One of the most beautiful things I've ever heard before was when I was working in a family program (coughs) and this dad said to his son, if you being well means that I never get to see you again for the rest of my life, I love you enough to, to do that. Mm. And so many families are like, well, that's then they they think about them and they're like, well, that's not unconditional love. It means like, you know, like what that dad did was unconditional love, like Mm -hmm. offering that to your son. Like if you getting well means I can't see you again, 
please get well. I'd rather you be happy than me be happy by seeing you. But so many families are like, well, I mean, but what about me? How am I affected by this? This leads me to something. Uh, again, maybe I'm devil advocate this episode. Sorry. This episode. That's okay. <laughs> uh, what about that? I, I hear a lot of, and I, and I think it's beautiful when uh, people are trying to get sober mm-hmm. and, and they do, and then they have kids. Mm-hmm. And then all I see about them is how the, they do it for the kid. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the, the reverse instead of doing it for your family. I mean, it's still family. Oh, but like they're maintaining their sobriety for their children. Yes. Hmm. Also problematic. Then it's conditional. Yeah. Because if you are only loving yourself and getting well yourself to benefit others, they're going to let you down, which means that the kids then feel an enormous amount of pressure because if they don't. Right. I want, yeah. Yeah. Is that message being portrayed to your children? Mm -hmm. If I blow it, mom and dad are going to lose their sobriety. And I have kids that are across the age spectrum, right? For 10, 18, 20. But my four-year-old is super perceptive. Mm -hmm. And if I were saying things like that at the Mm -hmm. kitchen table or as a sidebar to a friend, like she would hear it and then she would repeat it. Right. Mm. So I'm only doing this for you or I'm only taking care of myself for you. Mm -hmm. All of those messages, I think, really translate to kids and they pick up on it. Definitely. My mom used to wake me up in the middle of the night and be like, the only reason I'm alive was to make you. Mm-hmm. And mm. I mean, that's, that's definitely touching. loose. <laughs> oh, but they were like drug filled, mm-hmm. like right. three in the morning. And you're like, I've been up for days. What the heck do I do with that information? Yeah. Right. I don't know. But on that same note, uh, I think that having children in recovery is also a great motivator to like want to be the healthiest version of yourself Mm -hmm. for yourself and your children, not just for your children, but for yourself. So it's situationally based, I guess. Yeah, you should never do something for someone else Mm -hmm. like that because recovery is a part of your life. And I mean, you can get shit, you can get a tattoo for someone. You can like, there's a lot of other nice (laughs) things you can do that really also bad. That are long lasting, you know, but like recovering for someone else, then that creates a conditional relationship and a lot of expectations that someone's going to blow eventually. Although I will say for some people who are in active addiction, it's hard to have hope. It's Mm -hmm. hard to think that there's a possibility of a different life. um, Especially if you've tried a few times And so for a lot of people, a lot of women uh, getting pregnant or having kids or having kids removed by child protective services, that might be the initial Mm -hmm. motivator. Exactly. And I think that's okay. I mean, whatever it takes. Sometimes that's exactly what I was thinking. Sometimes prison's the initial motivator. And I mean, I wouldn't. A consequence of some kind. However, you can help yourself Mm -hmm. from day to day. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think you're also correct, Dr. Sarah. There are issues Mm -hmm. with certain um what, what do you call it handing over your power or like yes, yes. control mm-hmm. yeah. yeah behavioral like motivational right. Right, right right motivations right yeah i think though at some point if that's your initial motivator at some point in your recovery it needs to change and you mm-hmm. need to start valuing yourself um because you're right your kids are going to disappoint you there's going to be a day where your kids talk back and slam a door in your face. I'm not speaking from experience, but maybe I am. <laughs> you know, there's going to be some really hard dates. Being a parent's not easy. Um, and so the hope is, is that you have other supports, you have other values, you value yourself, you value your life. You do value your child's life too, but that it's a more robust, you know, picture mm-hmm. of where your hope comes from and what has value in your life. Right. If someone's participating in their recovery on a daily basis, um, that usually shifts. So again, Mm -hmm. that initial motivator might be for your children or your family or whomever. But once you're in the recovery process, it organically happens to where you want to take charge of your own life and focus on, you know, the things that you might have, uh, severed or things you may want to heal. Um, and also things you want to explore. So 
Again, that initial motivator can be somebody else, but it usually almost always, if you're following some kind of a recovery program, turns into wanting to get yourself better. And that's the hope too. Because if you get well for someone else, like what if you get well and then you go find the person like, okay, you know how we had these like relationship problems or like your kids don't talk to you. Then all of a sudden you find recovery and then you run to them and they're like, I'm not ready to talk to you. Then it's like, well, screw it. I'm, I'm back off again. And then the other person probably thinks it's their fault, but it's not, mm-hmm. you know? That's why support is so important. So important. Lasting thoughts on the movie. Two thumbs way up. Mm-hmm. I think they did. I think something else important to talk about is how the impact that media has on the general public. Meaning? Meaning that movies are often where people receive all of their information about really important, really serious things like addiction. And we hear about addiction in the news and see it on Time magazine. And then people are like, what's this about? And then we see movies and we're like, oh, and then that kind of shapes our paradigm for how we see addiction. And it's either contributing to stigma or reducing stigma. And what do you think this movie did? Uh I think it is, wow, that's a really good question. Uh, I am a person in long-term recovery, so I am not a good person to ask because I feel as though it was a perfect depiction of what addiction looks like. And I don't feel as though it is contributing to stigma, but I could see from somebody who has not been touched personally in their lives, how it could be definitely um, a negative negative view. I think it was good because it was very real and it showed a picture of somebody living with an addiction that someone maybe hasn't seen before. So it could shift like they're like, oh, they're not all, you know, poor or a a minority living under a bridge somewhere. Like this is a very real thing that can happen to anyone. But then I also think that it increased the stigma of uh, like, I guess, for family members seeking recovery and how it kind of uh, enables them maybe to continue to enable because it there's there's no one to tell someone what the right thing is for a family member to do. On a technical <laughs> aspect, I thought it was shot very well. On a t- <laughs> cinematography wise, it was very nice. I did not enjoy the music, even though I, I somewhat agree with you now what? that maybe that uh, was on purpose. I don't know. Look, they were just playing off a playlist. No way. Everything is intentional. Nah, I don't think so. I don't know about this Felix Van Ronening. (laughs) What? Felix. (laughs) What I will say, though, is that the actual people portrayed in the film were helping through the process of like keeping it as authentic as it actually was. Was it wrong that there were some scenes that I thought were comedic that weren't supposed to be? Uh Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Such as... I'm curious too. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus wasn't in there. <laughs> when he put, when he put his girlfriend into the Jesus. <laughs> when he put his girlfriend into the uh, ambulance uh, uh-huh. and she's like, "Are you gonna come meet me?" He was like, "God damn it, I'll be there. What do you want from me?" Mm-hmm. Cracked up. Right. That exact uh, scene is part of my show that I'm in. <laughs> oh. Cool. I didn't. It was already written before we had even seen this movie, and I was like, "What?" I mean, very similar, I should say. But And then when he took all the pictures of his son off the wall, mm. I couldn't help but laugh. <laughs> should they have meatloaf in the background? <laughs> that would have probably... I would do when... <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. But he wouldn't do that. Right. He wouldn't do that. Or would he? He wouldn't. Yeah. That's why he took the pictures off. We now know what meatloaf wouldn't have done right. for love. It's solved here today on accident. We shouldn't be laughing. Oh, we're laughing. Told you. It's it's funny. Right. Some things in those were. (sighs) Anyways, thank you for coming out. I hope you had fun. Yes. We're going to do this again soon. Where can uh, people find out about your uh, play and you and the Foundation for Recovery and all that good stuff? So people can come to the Foundation for Recovery uh, at 4800 Alpine Place, Suite 12. Um, we do peer support. We do 
advocacy training, uh, recovery leadership skills trainings. We do basic skills trainings. We also do uh, sober social activities, um, different pathways to recovery meetings. We have an all pathways to recovery meeting that meets every Friday at 1230. Um, so that if you identify with one pathway or not, you can come on in. Um, or if you feel as though you don't know what your pathway to recovery is, you can come on in. It's like a non-denominational pathway. That is so true. Yes. Yeah, so people who are on medication assisted treatment, um, aren't necessarily welcomed all the time in recovery, um, communities. So this is a great place for them as well, but you can find me personally. <laughs> okay. Everybody who's listening, get a pen. I'll wait. <laughs> okay. All right. We're ready. You can always rewind if you want. Okay. Uh, the period marvelous period miss period Moni. And that's my name. Nice. And and your play is going to be? The play is going to be uh, Broken Misfits. Uh, the N.A. musical will be next. N.A. recovery, same thing, but okay. And, and when does your album drop? My album? Your, your rap album? <laughs> I'm currently working on that rap album, so stay tuned. 2020? For president. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the show will be on January 27th at 4 p.m. at 2 South Pecos. Christ the Servant Lutheran Church, $10 to get in. It's a recovery musical. I'm in it. I rap in it. I sing in it. I dance in it. We have a live band, the Elephant Ballet. Um, we'll orchestrate. So it's really cool. Nice. Well, again, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Next, we should talk about A Star is Born. <gasps> Next, I'm going to pick the Can movie. we sing it? Oh. We can sing the whole episode. Okay. No, we can. Practice. Chris. <laughs> Stay tuned for our musical episode. <laughs> Minus me. Fine, I'll play Bradley Cooper. <laughs> Who didn't win the Golden Globes? Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that goodness. And send us a story. Reach out to us. Talk to us. We really would like some feedback.